like to um, I'd like to thank everyone for coming and get it started. It's um, my pleasure today to welcome all of you here to the Mershon Center, um, and uh, especially uh, happy that uh, we're able to have Anthony Cordesman here uh, this spring semester. We've been trying to uh, do three sort of major events a year, and this is the spring quarter. So the one I want to thank Sean Kay. I can't see him exactly now, but I know Sean is the one who helped organize this, and uh, I'm very grateful for his help all year long. Uh, as you know, we had General Abbey Zed in the winter and Strobe Talbot in the fall, and, and Tony Cordesman, I think, is uh, maybe the, we saved the best for last, or at least uh, uh, in good company. And <clears throat> Tony is the yeah, Ardley A. Burke Chair in Strategy at the Center for Strategic International Studies in Washington, and he's seen overseen any number of projects on the net assessments of military strength in the Gulf, uh, the Gulf in transition, uh, homeland defense project. He's led studies on the Iraq War, the Afghan conflict, nation building, counterinsurgency, and go on and on. He's written um, over 50 books, uh, a four-volume series on the lessons of modern war. Many of you have probably seen him on ABC where he's a commentator often when the country is in active stages of military conflict. Today he's going to speak about Afghan and Pakistan. And without further ado, I'd like to introduce Tony Cordesman. Welcome to Mershon, Tony. Thank you very much. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and thank you very much for coming. You know, it occurred to me on the flight down here that it is very close to just about exactly half a century since I became directly involved in the national security business. I was a summer intern dealing with special projects in the Navy, which some of you may remember as the Polaris Project. But what I find particularly relevant about that history is that I'm also old enough to have been involved in various capacities with the problems of Vietnam. And I started out, as I think most people do in government, as what is called a gopher. And I don't think you need to have me spell that term, but it is not the small animal. And as the years went by, I found myself going back and forth to Vietnam, mostly as an accidental tourist. And finally, after we had left Vietnam, and it is somewhat ironic to think that we did leave Vietnam, we had created a Vietnamese army to replace us, we had created a democratic government, we had negotiated a peace agreement, and by all of the standards that we sometimes seem to be seeking in Iraq and Afghanistan, we had succeeded. Only, obviously, years after that success, to fail. It also strikes me, as I deal with the problems of Afghanistan and Iraq, how familiar many of them are. And not only in terms of the lessons we have to learn, the risks we take, but even the structure of what you have to deal with in Washington. 
Most of you are too younger, too young to remember that there was a time when the problem was neoliberals, not neoconservatives, when it was the best and the brightest. And when you look at the parallel, some of them are striking. Presidents from Texas who had no real experience dealing with issues, President Johnson, President Bush, a Secretary of State, or Secretaries of State in both cases who really stood aside in many ways from the course of the war. While they were different in some ways, having worked directly for both, Secretary Rumsfeld and Secretary McNamara had remarkably similar characteristics in decision-making and management. You watched the structure of what happened within the office of the Secretary of Defense, and it's an awkward parallel. But the real-world differences between Doug Fife and John McNaughton were not that great. And when you look at our national security advisors today and compare them with McGeorge Bundy and the Rostows, one does have to wonder how much we learn, if anything, in the course of half a century. And I think that is, in some ways, all too relevant because we went into Vietnam not having any clear picture of what might happen. We escalated in terms of the pressures of events. Strategies were largely reactive. Resources came after pressure was necessary. The political dimension became decoupled in many ways from the war-fighting dimension. Much more technical problems. How do you create or train a force? Having watched what we did with the Arvin, it was amazing to see how many of the problems that we had in creating the Arvin, we then proceeded to repeat in Lebanon after 1982, repeat in Afghanistan, and then repeat in Iraq. There is, I think, a very limited sense of history. And perhaps that's inevitable in a country where the turnover <clears throat> is so high and where history often is more political than military or operational. But I cite it today because I'm going to take you through a fairly complicated briefing on Afghanistan, I'm going to describe a war which tends to be reported in terms of daily events rather than trends. I'm going to talk about resources and not simply combat and politics. And a lot of what I am going to say is not simply applicable to this war. But let me begin with some realities. These are not terribly original points. When you go to Afghanistan, they are points that you are going to hear raised by the U.S. commands. 
or by the U.S. Embassy, much less by NATO ISAF, which has to be, by nature, a much more political structure. Some of these lessons are already reflected in the new field manual on counterinsurgency. They're reflected in new DOD directives and in efforts between the State Department and the Defense Department to change the civil-military partnership in warfighting, which are really just beginning, but at least recognize the scale of the problem. Where they're a lot less familiar, I think, is here. People keep using the term counterinsurgency, and if that was our only problem, life would be infinitely better than it is today. The problem is we're dealing with broken states. Our problem is not simply dealing with insurgents. We are dealing with ideology, people and territory, not simply military force. The time frame of 15 years often seems very strange, almost striking when I talk to audiences here. You look at the view graphs that you see used for planning purposes in Afghanistan and in Iraq, and people talk about half a decade, a decade, not quick or instant solutions timed to an election or a budget cycle or the kind of single-point solution that sometimes we as Americans like. Now, one of the other keys here, and I'm not going to walk you through each of these tick marks, but one of the things that you have to really also understand is when you are sitting in the United States, you want to know about the war. And the war is an entity. You're talking about national trends, overall trends, things you can boil down into some sort of coherent structure. Those of you who have actually served in this kind of conflict know, particularly if you've been outside the Capitol, that Tip O'Neill's point about American politics is just as valid for this kind of fighting. The fighting is local. The victory is local. The implementation of what you do is local. And you win where the enemy is. You win where the operation is. You do not win in the capital, except to the concern or the level to which the capital is the focal point. That is easy to lose. It's so much more fun to write about a counterinsurgency doctrine than it is to apply counterinsurgency differently in Helmand, Kandahar, or even the two zones occupied by right now the 101st Airborne in eastern Afghanistan. But the people fighting there as in Vietnam, do not fight on a national basis. They fight locally. And politics and development occur locally. You win in the effort to blend these together at the point where you can basically not simply defeat the enemy tactically, but politically in economics and ideology. Now, these are two very different countries in some respects. The point I would make 
about Afghanistan that is often lost is it is larger, it has a larger population, it is a far more difficult place to fight in terms of terrain, weather, and mobility. The threat on the border with Pakistan is far more severe than the threat posed by Iran or Syria. And the constant problem of poverty operates at a fundamentally different level. One that has grown since 1979 from a state on the edge of subsistence as distinguished from a partially developed and wealthy oil state. Afghanistan has ethnic and sectarian differences. It also is far more fragmented than Iraq. The fragmentation is tribal. The difference is sometimes hard to explain, but in Iraq, tribal groupings are involved in broad confederations. There is not the sort of valley-by-valley -valley friction that you can get, for example, in most of Afghanistan, particularly Pashtun areas. Now, a word about what we have. It's rather odd. This is not so much the forgotten war as the unreported war. The United States government says absolutely nothing useful in public about Afghanistan with the possible exception of the papers prepared by the Congressional Research Service. There's no weekly report. There's no quarterly report. There's no annual analysis. There's no breakout of the aid effort in the country that's meaningful. There's no analysis of measures of effectiveness. Most of the data that have become public are leaked, but when you go out there, these are the elements. And I think one of the keys to note is that at least in the field, the fact that all four of these variables are equally important is known, understood, and part of the plan. This is a view graph which looks fussy and complex. Well, welcome to the real world. War is fussy and complex. And if anybody tries to simplify it for you, that's one way to know that somebody is useless or dangerous. <laughs> if you can't cope with complexity, find another profession. You're a danger to all of those around you. And this is the level of complexity, which is basically the operational plan used by the U.S. military forces in the region. One of the things you will not normally see, a friend of mine declassified this for me, and this is only eastern Afghanistan, is the difficulty we have in actually breaking out even one part of the area. This isn't the whole U.S. command operation in the East. This is only half of it. The complexity in terms of red, yellow, green, the other colors, is simply a way of trying to roughly estimate success by province. In classified breakouts of how we fight and plan in this area, the maps are topographic because topography often dictates how tribal and other elements work. 
the aid plan in the real world, if there can be one, because in most areas we have no aid personnel and no aid effort, has to be focused, but it has to be tied to governance and security, and security has to be tied to rule of law, the creation of Afghan forces, and our forces. And just to take you into time frames, if you wondered what I meant when I talked about the slides or the time frames people use in the field for planning versus the kind of time frames you see discussed in really mindless activities like our presidential political campaigns, let me note this is 2020, this is 2013. If you were wondering about Iraq, both the Iraqi Minister of Defense and General Dubik, who's in charge of training Iraqi forces, have talked about moving to the point of successful counterinsurgency capabilities in 2012. That's not exactly the figure you would hear politically in the United States. Let me just talk about intensity of conflict. I won't walk you through all of these, they're on the web, but what's interesting is this is the last declassified breakout of the expansion of the Taliban ever issued by the United States government. If you look at these red spots, these are areas of growing Taliban activity. These bar graphs show how the method of attack and the target patterns have developed. Between 2005 and 2006, the areas of intense attack in Afghanistan increased nine times. These are not casual changes. I should keep one careful thing in perspective. This is not a large, well-developed army. These incidents are not the level of intensity or casualties you see in Iraq. The problem is, in Afghanistan, it takes relatively little violence and relatively small cadres to have a great deal of local leverage, particularly because in many areas there is no meaningful NATO or U.S. presence, no aid activity aside from NGOs, if that. And if the Afghan government is present at all, it is often present in the form of figures that are corrupt and contribute to the problem and not to the solution. The rise in violence is a steady pattern in all of these slides. Let me just note here one of the great defects we have in the United States in looking at these wars, and we have now had for half a century, is a focus on major attacks or casualties defined as people killed. We have been working at this now for my adult lifetime. Survey after survey in war after war has shown us that people in the areas where we are fighting perceive violence in terms of the total pattern of violence. 
That includes crime, kidnappings. It includes woundings. It includes disappearances. It includes violent extortion. They do not necessarily coincide. And when you focus on the number killed, you ignore that reality, just as one of our cultural problems is the inability to understand that when we kick a door down, have a checkpoint, move a convoy, or do anything else with men and women in uniform, we are perceived as part of the violence. And in many areas in Iraq, less so in Afghanistan, when you look at public opinion polling, people see violence from us as much more common than the violence that comes from Al-Qaeda or the Taliban. This need to look at this in net assessment terms is critical in every country where we deal with this issue. Now this takes us a little more up to date. 2005 and 2006 were bad enough. This is 2006 and this is 2007. They're not directly comparable. This is a UN map which was never supposed to be publicly released. It's based on the same data, however, as the US intelligence map I showed you earlier. You'll notice just how much worse the situation has gotten. And this map is of May 2007. It is not a risk map for later in the year. This is not, again, easily comparable, but this is the area now where NGOs, ordinary people, businessmen, run a high risk of abduction. Now when people talk about violence and trends in Afghanistan, these are realities. This is another measure. This is the number of people killed in U.S. and Allied forces in the course of the escalation between 2005 and 2007. The problem about wounded applies to U.S. casualties, not, similar, not simply civilians. If you're wondering what these mountain ranges are, I think it's clear. They're wounded. This is American wounded in 2006, or rather 2005, 2006, and 2007. This is not a casual war. It isn't something you can measure in terms of killed. When you go out to the area, you can see it. It isn't a matter of driving around in Humvees or armored vehicles. It's a matter of flying back from a field position forward, sometimes with a coffin. Things have not gotten better in 2008. This is the first quarter of 2007 compared to 2008. You can see the rise in attacks and casualties. This is a more controversial set of numbers, and thanks to Microsoft, what I can't show you is, while the percentages are very dramatic, the figures are sometimes relatively small as a base. But this is true. 
Security incidents are up about 40% this spring. They're worse in the South. But what we're also seeing is a very, very sharp rise in attacks outside the South and the East. People talk about the Taliban being defeated because we win every tactical clash. Harry Summers, in one of his writings, talks about an exchange he had with an officer from the North Vietnamese in which Colonel Summers explained at some length how we had won every tactical clash in Vietnam, to which the North Vietnamese officer replied, yes, but it was irrelevant. One has to be careful about tactical victories unless they're political and economic. And one of the things you will see, not mapped, unfortunately, on classified terms, but this is an unclassified source, these are the patterns moving north and moving west. It has continued in 2008. This ends in January but the patterns have gone on since then. What we are watching is not Taliban control. It is Taliban influence. It's the creation of new support and base areas. It is setting up the ability to occupy, to achieve economic and political influence, to carry out disruptive acts, if you wish to call it terrorism, or destabilizing violence, which may be a better description. And they don't have to attack NATO or ISAF forces, and they don't have to take control of the cities that are shown here as yellow spots. They win by enduring. They win by outlasting our patience, our willingness, and our ability to make useful change. It's not clear they can win. We're probably talking about core cadres of under 15,000 people in this entire area. But they can move anywhere. They can find the weaknesses. They are not concerned with NATO's rules of engagement or zones or caveats. Or the weaknesses in the Afghan political structure except as targets. This is an example in Kandahar. And this shows you what is a very simple way of measuring force density relative to critical logistics. This precedes the Marines and the British reinforcement. But basically speaking, they have not changed any red area. All that has happened is the green zones are better secured and somewhat larger. The red area is the area where we basically cannot go at night or without an armored column. And I say we in the sense of the Canadians, the Danes, and the Brits. Our forces are in the east. Again, I remember an exchange General Abrams had in reviewing somewhat similar data with Bob Comer a very, very long time ago in Vietnam. General Abrams made the point, after Ambassador Comer, then just Mr. Comer, talked about the vast areas that we had secured and pacified in Vietnam. If you can't go there at night, 
It isn't pacified. Now that brings us up to speed, and again, I'm not going to take you through all of the polls. But let me make this point. Wherever we do not have adequate forces, wherever we can't bring aid, wherever there are not government services, particularly in Pashtun areas, the Taliban moves in. As it moves in, whether it is really popular or not, people describe it as popular. Wherever it moves in, regardless of what happens in the rest of the country, our popularity and that of the Afghan central government goes way down. I don't want to describe national polling in Iraq or Afghanistan as totally irrelevant. It can show you some useful trends. But very often what happens is it simply disguises the fact you have a steadily growing problem in the area where you're fighting that is buried in the overall national statistics. We're talking about changing movements. This again is an unclassified map. It dates back to late 2005, but it does get the point across. This was the area of Taliban influence or control then. It's now more like this. But this is the classic Taliban under Omar. This Taliban group is far more complex and dispersed. It interacts with two other similar Islamist movements. It does not have a tight hierarchy. It is tied to the Taliban in Pakistan, and it has a steadily growing influence from al-Qaeda. Over the last two years, we have watched a much sharper growth, not of a cohesive movement, but one that's flexible and adaptable in the East and expanding its influence in Pakistan, countering to some degree what has been a very successful U.S. military campaign, which has been extremely badly funded in governance and aid. Well, the lack of troops and coverage in this region has expanded Omar's movement. All of these slides make essentially the same issue. One of the results is that more and more Afghans are afraid we're going to leave or be pushed out. There is more and more support for talking to the Taliban and for some kind of coalition with the Taliban, not because people like it, but because they believe it will outlast us and they have to be cautious in the process. I would say, frankly, and I would say this to anybody here who's an academic or a student, that anyone who writes on Afghanistan without writing on Pakistan is irresponsible and incompetent and any discussion of the Afghan war, which does not include Pakistan, simply reflects the lack of skill, perspective, and realism on the part of the author. Now, if that sounds like an interesting slam at academia, go take a look at the NATO ISAF website. 
the United States government website, the websites of Canada, Denmark, Germany, Spain, France. Pick a country in NATO ISAF. Pakistan does not, by and large, exist. But this is not a one-country war. And part of the problem we face is that a strategy has to deal with both, difficult as it may be. I won't walk you through all of these issues, but if you're wondering, this is Pashtunistan, not because it exists as such, but this is the Pashtun area. One of the great problems is these tribal areas, which people keep referring to, are Pashtun. There's never been a real border here, and there won't be. No case of successful border defense has occurred in the history of counterinsurgency except on an island since World War II, which may say a little about the chances of immigration in the United States. <laughs> that doesn't stop us from funding ridiculous efforts at creating border posts. But let me say, it isn't just us. Some of the most expensive border defenses in the world are precisely in the areas where the worst infiltration problems still occur. Saudi Arabia and Yemen is an example. What's also interesting is, even in the press, which does a much better job of reporting than anyone else, this is the Baluchi area. It overlaps the Pashtun areas. Virtually everything written on Afghanistan ignores the fact that the major source of fighting doesn't come from the Fatah area, it comes from the Baluchi areas, which is another warning of how much we understand this. And some of you now who understand what happened with the Ho Chi Minh Trail and why people got involved with Cambodia and Laos may remember it took us about eight years to fully understand what it really meant if you ignored key countries in your enemy's supply lines, regrouping, and sanctuaries. There are a lot of different ways to describe this, again, during the briefing. One of the things, though, that I think we need to understand, and it's been, this is an earlier survey, but understand Afghans, by and large, may not trust us or believe we'll win, but they'd like us to. Pakistanis, like many other people outside Afghanistan, believe this war is our fault. They believe we destabilized Pakistan by driving the Taliban into it. That we destabilized Pakistan by moving al-Qaeda. They believe our motives in the war on terrorism are fundamentally anti-Islamic because they do not happen to be Arab. They don't have the other bar which says, and this is typical of many countries, that the image of our war on terrorism is also anti-Arab. Before we type ourselves as the good guys, Remember that there is a fairly democratic side of Pakistan which believes we are the bad guys. 
and that vastly complicates the strategic problems of operating in the area. It hasn't been helped by putting aid money into weapons, particularly weapons irrelevant to the actual fight. It hasn't been helped by creating this very, very nicely pseudo-Afghan border post and coordination center where we've actually had meetings of Afghan, Pakistani, and U.S. officials, which have been more polite than those between Iraqi, U.S., and Iranian officials, but so far not more productive. NATO ISAF, let me again just make a brief point. This is the density of all forces in Afghanistan in 2007 relative to the population in the area. That's the density in Bosnia, in Kosovo, and Iraq. That's seven times the density of forces to do the fight that we have in a country much harder to fight. These are the relatively large number of people who don't fight in the NATO ISAF side. But let me note, when we talk about these countries, Germany and France combined are less than one U.S. field brigade slice to cover a country bigger than Iraq. So stand aside doesn't mean that much relative to not there and not enough resources. This is the U.S. presence. This is the Allied presence. That's the Brits, I'm sorry, that's PowerPoint in action. Take a look. We may call this a NATO-ISAF conflict. This is our war. Some dynamics. What happens when you really don't have enough forces? you have to substitute air power. What happens when you don't have enough people on the ground? You can't target all that well. If you can't target, what happens? You do collateral damage and you kill civilians, no matter how good your rules of engagement or your intelligence and review procedures are. And they are very good. They're far better than any of the procedures we had in the Balkans or in any previous war. But you cannot be paralyzed in war by ignorance. And so, while these strikes are why we have continued to win tactically, because without air power, we would have lost on the ground in a number of key battles, there's a price tag for inadequate forces. This is a broader lesson. Many of you have probably heard the phrase, follow the money. Anybody who has worked in Washington knows if you have a choice between controlling the policy and the strategy or controlling the money, you are absolutely out of your mind to give a damn about policy or strategy. In fact, one of the fastest ways to marginalize somebody you don't like is to put them in charge of policy or long-term planning. 
and then go out and use the money. Look, you want to lose a war? This is how long it took us to get reasonable levels of military assistance, and it's only the green and the red line. People keep talking about why aren't these forces ready? Senator Levin, I'm sure none of you have ever heard of him, constantly complains about the capability of the Iraqi forces. Well, Senator, if it takes you four years to get around to seriously financing the development of the forces, if you rush them into combat before they're ready, if you think military training is relevant to creating warfighting capability in spite of lesson after lesson that says unless training is put into units that have embeds in partner units or prior combat experience, it is a total waste of effort and money, then guess what? Your forces not only aren't effective, they get used up, disheartened, and they break. And they turn to ethnic and other capabilities. Look at the rate of buildup once the money began to come in. Gee, what a surprise. They began with nothing and it didn't work out the first year. This shouldn't be that much of a shock. These are the force goals. We're at 49,000 men within the Army. We're talking about 70,000 within the Army. There are people out there seriously talking about 200,000 now. And we're not going to get there in less than five years. Another minor issue, there's a vast amount of literature on training the Iraqi and the Afghan police. You want to know how many successful police forces have been created in the course of some 60 or 70 counterinsurgencies since World War II? None. Not if the state did not have a successful police and a reasonable rule of law before you tried. What really happens with police? You try to use them as paramilitaries, but you don't have enough trainers, money, or equipment to make them paramilitary. In the process, you create nationally oriented police forces rather than local and regional police forces. Because you're focused on the police, you don't have a rule of law. One of the iron laws of police is, unless you have a court system, a rule of law and governance presence, the whole process becomes corrupt and brutalized, and the police tend to become part of the problem rather than the solution. These aren't new facts. But there is book after book written on how to do this based on theory, and virtually nothing looking at the history of the practice. Again, now more broadly, everybody talks about the cost of the Iraq War. Uh, 
this line here is the Afghan war. What I said about follow the money, if you don't resource it, you can't win. If you don't put the money into the field, you don't even have to ask whether you can spend it effectively or efficiently. You're going to lose because you haven't provided the basic elements of victory. Now, I can take you through a whole bunch of other issues, but let me just give you two others and open this up for questions. We don't like drugs, or at least we say we don't. We've never, ever bothered to seriously interfere with the drug trade enough to reduce street prices, or rather raise street prices in meaningful terms. We've never had, for all the rhetoric, meaningful seizures of drugs, just the cost of doing business. Nothing we've ever done here has had much impact. But Afghanistan's a little different. We have managed, to some extent, through our eradication programs, to cut drugs in the areas most under our influence and that of our allies, and vastly increase the drug output in the provinces under Taliban influence and control. We've managed to alienate a vast number of Afghans in the process, and we've managed to finance the Taliban and Al-Qaeda simply splendidly. It wouldn't be the only self-inflicted wound in this particular war, but the only thing that's going to make things better is not going to be this program. It's the fact that the value of wheat has gone way up and the rains are better in Afghanistan. That may actually cut the drug crop this year. When it comes down to our efforts, they've provided aid and comfort to the enemy. Governance, let me just briefly say this. Maybe we ought to just formally ban the word democracy from American international relations. Some of you may have noticed you don't live in a democracy. Guess what? You live in a republic, a federal structure with a judicial system, checks and balances, and you have representatives operating under the rule of law. Your political parties are experienced, they're responsible, and when they're defeated, they tend to leave office. If you can't meet those tests, you do not have legitimate government. If you meet all of them, and there is no one out in the field providing government services to ordinary people, it is irrelevant that political scientists will applaud you for your legitimacy. Legitimacy is measured in terms of what governments do. Think about it for a moment. If you have a choice between your political party winning and getting mugged, what is the choice you're going to make? And unfortunately, we have lost sight of any of the realities there. 
and we have compounded it by focusing on the central government to the exclusion of local and regional governments, which are the key to providing services when central governments are weak and corrupt. Just a last word about aid. One of the slogans we've learned is that dollars are as important as bullets. You saw the earlier figures on military effort relative to Kosovo and Bosnia. Well, that's the impact of U.S. aid per capita relative to Bosnia, Kosovo, and Iraq. And this country has suffered immeasurably more than Iraq has. This is the pattern of aid. What it shows you consistently is that our aid programs are grossly inadequate, but you meet some extraordinarily brave people in the field. I've met people running projects which basically have no security in areas where their lives are at hazard. So I want to be very careful about what I say about the aid process because the respect I have for those people is immense. But these arrows are pointed at the spending distribution relative to the highest risk provinces. There's no correlation at all between spending and where you need the money. Worse than that, Something like about 4% of U.S. aid can be directly tied to the agricultural sector, which affects 70% of the employment in Afghanistan. Very good at ring roads, very good at a whole bunch of interesting projects, projects which involve enough U.S. contractors, so about 40 to 50% of the money that we donate to aid leaves Afghanistan without doing anything in Afghanistan. Those of you who really could have tracked the money in Vietnam would have been very surprised as to where the money went. A lot more went through the Vietnamese government and to Switzerland and other convenient places to park it. But this again is a very repetitive pattern. If I have a punchline to conclude with, and this is in many ways a quick, oversimplified view, even though I know it seems very complex and very dense, we have a weak, extreme enemy. We also have a remarkably failed, opaque effort to defeat that enemy. This war is eminently winnable, but it is not winnable on these terms. And if we are to come to grips with the reality of this conflict, it has to be to come to grips with reality. Promises, slogans, oversimplifications, and above all, a lack of basic resources cannot win. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much.
I think uh, Tony will handle his own questions. The floor is open. John, I'll just get the first one started. Uh, yes, I could add another possible punchline that might come good from this, that dealing with political reality, reality, particularly in the United States, the situation is fundamentally hopeless in Afghanistan under that policy, but people simply cut our losses and get out. Problem is, cut your losses and go where? Uh, you still have the problem, if you cut your losses, it isn't Afghanistan anymore, it's also Pakistan. And the regional impact of dealing with Afghanistan as a sanctuary would be bad enough. The problems of the potential impact on a nuclear-armed Pakistan get to be much more serious. You know, one of the things that I think you have today is you have one candidate that wants to stay without explaining how, and others that want to leave without describing what the impact will be or what they do next. But the acts never have that simple consequence, do they? You have to live with the aftermath. In back. Well, let, let me interrupt. The Brits tried. Yeah, the British and the Canadians and it, no, the no. Brit, let me, you know, having been involved, the Brits tried. It failed dismally. The tribal promises weren't kept. The Taliban went in, infiltrated areas the British had to deal with. They had to go back and refight the battle. The Canadians did not do that. The Canadians used a different strategy entirely. Very similar to the one we use, but they have very few resources to do it, which was to go out of main operating bases, put Canadians into forward areas as well, embed aid people with the military and work in local communities to try to create local security with tribal leaders who could see you stay. Now, we're repeating a somewhat similar negotiation in Pakistan. And there are all kinds of press reports about, as there were when the Brits did this, about the successes of the negotiations. Except, in so far, the negotiations managed to fall apart before they really even got signed. And I think the difficulty here is it's one thing to negotiate with local tribes when you have enough people and money to provide them with security to deal with the employment problems, 
to get them started in some kind of stability and security. When you negotiate with the Taliban and you don't do anything for the tribes, and in either Pakistan or Afghanistan, the government isn't present, provides no reason to be loyal to the government, and the, Pakistan, the Taliban stays around, the end results are almost inevitable. So should you negotiate with the local tribes? Yes. But it isn't a matter of political theory. If you don't provide presence and resources, it's an exercise in futility. And if you're negotiating with an enemy which absolutely ideologically rejects you, and you can't create any incentives to split that enemy, or bring part of the groups that may be more moderate onto your side that are lasting, it's a scrap of paper and it falls apart. Yes? Well, I, no, I think you fundamentally misunderstand the slides because there is no real Russian or Chinese presence here. The Iranian presence has, to some extent, been legitimate in backing Shiite minorities, but can you negotiate with these people to achieve some kind of Congress of Vienna? Forget it. It's like the Swiss model. There's nobody to negotiate. All the people are on the outside. They haven't got the ability to play inside. Let me go back. They have no power and no influence. China has influence over Not the kind you mean. No, it's not going to alter the Pakistani behavior in either Baluchistan or the Fatah area. No, it doesn't have that kind of influence. I'm saying that you can use allies or people to achieve tangible, credible goals but as it's sort of like dialogue, a confusion between negotiation and progress is like a confusion between dialogue and progress. If you can't find a clear reason, points of leverage and outcomes that have a credible reason to succeed, it becomes a slogan, which is what happened with the Iraq study group and so many others. So one of the reasons, it's like the phrase international community. There isn't any. There's just a group of nations you can work with, and sometimes that group of nations can be very, very successful. But it's successful because they have a motive and a reason. They're willing to either intervene or they have direct influence. Otherwise, people use the phrase international community when they don't want to do anything, and they punt. Unfortunately, that isn't the way to get anything done here. Yes? Oh, um, when I listen to you and, and look at the slides, um, I'm reminded of, Chris mentioned Bill Abizadi here uh, a few months ago, I'm reminded of some of the stuff we've been hearing about what's going on in Iraq and, and embedding local, embedding uh, uh, points and localities, trying to get far more aid military types, but just straight economic aid in a variety of sorts into those communities. You're telling something like a similar story now, but my question is this, is the problem in Washington, or is the problem 
it gives the first set of problems to address. Let me put it that way. In Washington, trying to get the groups together to actually bring the forces, economic and otherwise, to bear in Afghanistan, or is there some other thing that we're not seeing? You, you, you said the international community isn't there. We clearly aren't there on the ground. The question is, why? First, let me again go, there is no international community. Just as there is no UN. There are UN civil servants, there are members of the UN. Whenever you people use the phrase without being able to say specific assets. The problem with what we're watching in Afghanistan and Iraq is complex. There is an aid culture. One is that NGOs still have a kind of vague feeling that they're blue flag operations. They only should operate without working with the military. And if the military are getting involved, you can't actually do honest, reputable aid work. There is an aid community which basically can only think of developing the entire country. That community finds it extremely difficult to understand that you can't even begin to do this unless you can get some degree of local security and stability. When people are pushed below the subsistence level, they're not interested in development five or even two years in the future. They live right now. There is a bureaucratic culture I think particularly in Washington, remember that we had far more people from USAID in Vietnam than we have in all of AID today. AID has been under immense pressure from people like Jesse Helms. I think the days in which really high quality people rushed into AID are long over. The people who are good are people tied up in emergency relief. It's a different kind of field work. Most of the money in recent years has gone to Egypt and Israel on a turnkey basis, and most of the rest of AID activity is contracting for small projects. AID is not in charge of aid. There is a separate State Department official. So AID can't coordinate the aid efforts of the United States government or even coordinate the aid efforts within the State Department. It can't really write its own budget requests or defend them before OMB. Then we have the problem, how many of you have ever taken a course in state planning? Well, it's Ohio, so I won't ask you how many of you have lived in a kleptocracy. But quite seriously, one of the problems we have is we have a lot of people who individually can deal with a small project area and do very good work. We don't have people used to reorganizing antique state structures. We don't have people who are specialized and can suddenly walk in and operate in an Afghan or Iraqi economic and social environment. We have a lot of people who are on three and six month tours in countries where if you're not on a 15 to two year tour just establishing personal relationships, 
can be an absolutely critical problem. And we are dealing with failed governments, which are often three or four competent people deep per ministry, paying less than not necessarily a living wage, but the average university that pays half as much per professor as the university a mile away is not going to attract the best faculty, and people are going to spend a hell of a lot of time consulting and not teaching. In a place like Afghanistan, you not only don't have the talent pool, you're not paying people enough to operate as government officials and ministers. Now, there's a whole group of other little problems, ethnicity, religion, tribal problems. The fact that until you can get the roads in, it's very difficult to operate. In places like Iraq, what General Abizaid may or may not have known is we still have less than half the qualified civilian PRT people that are part of the surge plan. And out of the EPRTs that are military, more than half of them are direct assignments out of combat arms. One of the grim realities is they're often better than the people who are trained in the civil military side because they have a long history of actually getting things done as distinguished from discussing them. But these are the kinds of problems that we face. And in theory, Secretary Gates and Secretary Rice have an initiative to improve cooperation, to try to solve these problems, create a reserve corps of people who are trained. But the practice is that it can't get done till the next president takes office, and you won't get significant momentum if we get it till the second year or so of the next presidency. I mean, that's just real world in Washington. Yes? What's your recommendation for the U.S. Pakistan? Well, it's an extraordinarily difficult problem at this point because we really don't know what the political structure is going to be. The coalition has fallen apart. We, however, I think are going to have to take the rather painful step of regrouping. I think that first we need to show the civilians that the aid effort will meet civilian goals. Second, aid has to be accountable. We can't bribe the president anymore, so we better not waste the money. we have to quietly go back to the plan we were trying to implement before Musharraf imploded, which was to use U.S. Special Forces teams embedded with selected elements of the Pakistani army, not simply to train them in counterinsurgency, but to get them involved in civic action, because the sort of Arabic phrase applies just as much in Pakistan. Uh, the Arabic saying is, wherever the army finds a desert, it builds a garden, and wherever it finds a garden, it builds a desert. Uh, the Pakistani army is much better at the deserts at the moment than the garden. It would be very useful if 
because I think there is a good Pakistani chief of staff now who is being allowed to act, if we could go back to the original model of encouraging the Pakistani government to take the Baluchi and Fatah areas seriously, and if we could persuade the regular army units to be rotated out and put in the equivalent of Pakistani special forces, because when we were able to work with those units, the result was much more successful, both in countering the bad guys and leaving the good guys alone than it has been under the Pakistani army. But it's going to be a real mess. We're going to have to ride out Pakistan's internal convulsions. We're going to have to be much more careful about the image of interference. And we're going to have to provide civil incentives, not just bribe people with F-16s. Yes? I think that the model in Iraq may be the one we have to use. Because if you want to get anything done, you have to work by boosting your local government and boosting the regional government, not by concentrating on the center. Now, we've had some success where that's been done. But the real problem is when you try to boost local governments, there are so many of them and so few people relative to working with them. When you deal with provincial governments, the politics have been a nightmare of getting competent, useful governors in and getting the money and assets. I think actually we've done more and it's gotten better. In terms of the broad structure of Afghan ministries, it's just not clear that you can move forward at anything like the rate you want to. You don't have the people and you don't have the leverage. Our advisory teams are basically tied to experience, which often doesn't really equip them to work in the country involved. Getting around the basic problem of pay and privileges for Afghan civil servants and officials is really, really difficult. The answer, I think, has to be patience and not to expect very much. And just try then. The Many people will say, well, you need to work through them because that's the only way they'll ever develop the capability. I think the unfortunate reality is you can't work through them when you're fighting a war because you can't wait till they develop the capability. You've got to have progress in the field. It's a mess. I mean, if you're looking for sort of simple, straightforward policy recommendations that'll fix all of this, forget it. You're just dealing with very unstable, complex situations. And one of your problems is simply to have adequate people and money there and accept the fact that a lot of this may well be a serious problem 
the time whoever is elected this year is running again. Yes? Well, remember what actually happened, because having <clears throat> gone there during some of the opening, that was back a long, long time after Vietnam. What everybody said about political re-education camps turned out to be true. It was actually about three years ago that we, they, actually release some of the people that I was held up trying to get released during the collapse. When you talk about dominoes, I think that you have to be careful because India isn't a domino and Iran isn't a domino. Pakistan is at play. The whole issue, which is a very different problem, of what happens with Shiite, Sunni, Iran, Iraq, Lebanon, Syria is at play. I don't think anybody in Cambodia would quite have the same feelings about U.S. withdrawal from the area and the Vietnamese collapse that people in Thailand might. But the Thai border area, as I think you probably realize, was a serious problem for about seven years. It's not quite clear what would have happened if the second Vietnamese war hadn't taken place between Vietnam and China, which was a very serious conflict, particularly if you happen to be Vietnamese. I went back as a guest of the Vietnamese government military about four years ago. So they said it was a lot more complex than that. Well, remember, we weren't really out of the situation. We found ourselves deeply involved in the region, and we still are. So the problem is you can't get out of it, not that you can't get out of Iraq, but we didn't get out of Southeast Asia, anything but. Yeah, one more. Look, if it's an organized Taliban cell, they may be feuding with each other, but there are precisely no moderate Taliban organizational structures. They all have basically the same core ideology. Are there people within the Taliban who might be well persuaded to adopt or be absorbed into something that was working by way of a political structure in the FATA area or Afghanistan, the answer to that is yes. But all you have to do is look at the websites. There's nobody out there with a subtle subtext about moderation. And I think that we have to understand that the core believers here are core believers. Well, I mean, look, I'm not going to give you a lecture on their beliefs. It's very simple. It is, it's not defined in those terms. It's defined as 
a relatively crude form of Islamist Puritanism tied to the idea of Islamic rule, a caliphate, and total obedience to Sharia as interpreted in whatever way a given movement may have gotten to if they bothered to define it at any depth. Again, look at their websites because one thing they all have in common, regrettably, is the use of the internet. It's sort of like American college students. You can only pray that someone will prevent them from access. Over the years, I've been in a number of conferences with uh, Tony, and it's been a great pleasure to have him here to Mershon, finally. Uh, for some of you ask me all the time, isn't there anyone in Washington who knows what's going on at all? Uh, <laughs> uh, Tony has served, I forgot to mention, as uh, Director of uh, Intelligence Assessment for the Secretary of Defense and a variety of other important positions in the Senate Armed Services Committee. So for those of you who are students aspiring to work in Washington, you'll see there are very formidable people there who actually know a lot about the I want to thank you all for coming, and especially I want to thank Tony for a great presentation and a provocative talk. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.